It is well with our soul when we can love well, when we are better lovers. Let's uh, give our attention this morning to God's Word, 1 Corinthians 13, first three verses. Hear God's Word. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I want us to think this morning about the necessity of love in all that we do. I don't know about you, but one of the biggest uh, schemes of the devil in my life is to get me busy doing good things. And I am tempted every single week to do good things. Good things like, I mean, I, I wake up at times and say, I wish I could go visit every single person in the congregation. Just sit down and have a conversation. Well, there's 430 of you. That's more than one a day. You know, it'd be a good thing. And I would enjoy doing it. And I'm tempted to. But I know it gets done by other people. I don't have to do everything. I'm tempted to do good things like go hang out in the hospital and visit folks and pray with folks. I enjoy doing that. It gets done without me. But I'm often tempted to do those things. I pass by some of your homes. And, oh, I know they would appreciate a visit. And I would love to go and sit down with them and just offer a word of counsel or comfort or encouragement. Good things. I'm encouraged to do good things. I encourage myself to do so many things we're tempted to do. I don't know if you're tempted to do good things. But what if I do all of those good things that I'm tempted to do from time to time, and I miss what's vital, what's more important. Do you ever get tempted to do good things and miss the more important things? What if I do all of the good things, but I don't seek first the kingdom of God? I don't devote myself to God first. What if I do a lot of good things, but I don't love my wife? What if I love all of you and miss her? What if I do a lot of good things, but I don't train up my children in the way they should go and have devotions with them and train them to be fixed on God and His love? What if I do all the good things, but I don't do my primary job of writing, studying, preparing messages for you? What if I do the good things, but don't give the oversight to the church that it needs, the covering that it needs in prayer, so that it's left deteriorating and without a future? See how easy it is to be caught up in good things. And miss what's vital, what's crucial. 
And I think one of the things God's teaching us in 1 Corinthians 13, those first 13 verses, the three verses, is how we need to deprioritize our good things sometimes so that we can get on point. We can prioritize what's vital and crucial and important. And we all have that in our lives, that temptation to be focused on some really good things and miss what's really important and essential. You go to the hospital for good things. Well, what's the first thing they do? They check your vital things. They want to know, do you have a pulse and blood pressure, respiration, and temperature? And they constantly check that because they know that if, if, if that drops or goes up or whatever it does, the good things won't matter that you're there for. The vital things are essential. And so they check and they check and they recheck. Or they won't get you out of there the way you want and they want. Suppose um, your wife asks you, uh, could you clean up the kitchen while I go to the store and I'll be back in a little bit. And you think, wow, I could do better than that. And you vacuum and you do the laundry and you put the kids in bed. But you didn't clean up the kitchen. And she comes home, and you think, yeah, I have done some good things. But she has nowhere to lay her groceries. There's stuff on every kitchen counter. And she only asks you to do one thing. What does she feel like? She feels like slapping your grandma, you know, for not training you any better. That's the only thing she asks. And sometimes it's like that with God. God says, I only ask you one thing. Thing, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And your neighbor is yourself. And yet you fill your life with other good things. Do we get our priorities right? Are we focused where God wants us focused? The vital things that God has for us. I want you to see or remember 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter, it is in the middle of a rebuke. We sometimes snatch it out of its context and we think, you know, this is really a cool chapter all about love. You don't realize this is a rebuke. This is right in the middle of a rebuke. Go back to chapter 11 where he's teaching them to have the Lord's Supper, Supper like we do every week. But they are doing the Lord's Supper selfishly. Along with the Lord's Supper, they're having a covered dish meal, and everybody's boasting about how they've got more and better food than the other people, and they're not sharing it with one another, and it's not loving. Hence, they need a rebuke on love. It's coming. That's 1 Corinthians 11, and then 1 Corinthians 12, they're all about spiritual gifts, and they're boasting about who's can prophesy, who can speak in tongues, who can uh, exhort and preach and teach, and they're... Some gifts are better than other gifts. And they're really proud about who's, gift, who's got the best gifts. And who's seeking the best gifts. And you skip to the next chapter after 13, chapter 14. 
And they're still boasting. I'll give you just one verse. Chapter 14, verse 12. It says, So also you should uh, use, since you are zealous of these spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. You get a feel there. It's like you keep using this stuff for your own selfish reasons. And you're missing what's vital and loving which is why he says, I really don't care if you can prophesy, if you have faith, if you can move mountains, if you can speak in tongues. He says, you're missing the vital love for God and one another. When are you going to quit the boasting and the pride and the sin of doing good things while missing what's most important? And that is love. I'm talking to a bunch of good people this morning who do a bunch of good stuff. Have we learned to deprioritize our good things? By the way, I looked that word up. I thought I was inventing it. They said it's not used very often in the dictionary. But you get what I mean by it. Deprioritize some good things so that you can do what is vital what is often missing in your life. To do that, I think we must distinguish between a life of love and a life of performance. We are so prone towards a life of performance. Our society, our world wants us to perform. Our parents want us to perform. Our peers want us to perform. We want to perform. And performing, doing certain performances are good things. And they help good good people. But many times we get so focused on the good things, the performances that we do, we miss the vital things. Understand in uh, the first few verses here, Paul's using a figure of speech called hyperbole. Hyperbole is just an exaggeration for emphasis. Give you an example of the first one. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men, in other words, so you, you can speak many languages, Of people here on earth. He says, if I could do that. He says, if I do. And then I also speak with the tongues of angels. So you speak many languages here on earth. You also speak many languages in heaven. Who does that? That's a hyperbole. That's an exaggeration. You might can speak one or two tongues of men, but how many of you really speak tongues of angels? And you, you've got that down, and you're fluent both on earth and in heaven. He says, but I don't have love. You see, you can perform on a level most people can't. I mean, I, I admire people who can speak three and four languages. I have taken three and four languages, and I have forgotten all of them. You know? I admire the people who can perform at that level. Because even if you can and you miss love, you've missed it. And then he goes on, uh, you know, if if I uh, uh, had the gift of prophecy, I can preach, I can teach, I know all the mysteries, I know all knowledge, I've got all kinds of faith, I can move mountains. Who Who has that? Again, it's it's an exaggeration to say, take whatever performance you want to take to the highest level. And if you have it, but still don't have love, 
you, if you've prioritized that as though that's more important than love, you're missing it. Because love's more important than the highest performance you could possibly demonstrate to anyone. So he goes, goes through that. And then again in verse 3, if I, if I give my possessions away, I, I'm, I'm so generous. I don't just give some. I give all. I'm all in. All my possessions. I give even my body for the sacrifice. What a performance. Some gave some. Some gave all. What a performance. And we exalt it. But he says if you have that performance and still miss love, you've missed. You're left out. Um, Our popular view is that performance is what matters most. We encourage it. Um, We exalt it. It's the best of humanity. Um, We exalt it in so many ways. Uh, Like these, uh, we exalt the medical worker, the person who can discover the rare disease and cure us. We exalt the athlete who can outperform everyone else. We exalt the, the lawyer and the doctor and the preacher and whoever that's, that's up here on this level. They're just high and lifted up to us because they help us. Let me give you a tough question. If you have some illness and you discover this miracle working physician who knows exactly what you've got and they cure you, but they do so without love for God and the church. Does it matter for them? See, that's what he's talking about. Verse 3 says, it profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. To be able to miraculously visit your bedside pray with you, and literally lift you off of that bed well again. Now, you would exalt that person, say, that person changed my life, made me well. God says, but that person who did that for you, they did it without love. Profits them nothing. See, we don't think that way, do we? That's what the Scripture says, and yet... We are so conformed to the image of this world that we don't really sometimes get it. That performance isn't what rules, but it's love that rules. So how do we correct? How do we get back on task? Well, I think I'll give you four principles that help us to see that these extraordinary gifts we like to exalt, and we have a bunch of them, These extraordinary gifts, number one, they're given to the godly and the ungodly alike. In other words, they don't have so much value that the God of heaven reserves them only for his children. Do you have things that you only give to your kids, your family? I mean, this is insider stuff because your family. And when you look at the extraordinary gifts that God allows the world to use, you find out He doesn't just keep them for his kids. He gives them to the godly and the ungodly alike. Look at Matthew 7, 22 and 23. 
Matthew 7, 22 and 23 says, Many will say to me on the, that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, God's saying there are lots of people who can perform miracles. They can prophesy. They can pray. They can do extraordinary things. But they're not in heaven. So they're not heavenly. They will spend their life in hell. You think over in Matthew 8. I, I thought as they, Jesus was sending out, uh, or Matthew 12, uh, Jesus was sending out, excuse me, 10. I don't know why my mine's dyslexic this morning. I'm sitting there looking at it. Um, Matthew 10, when, when Jesus is sending out his disciples, he sends out all 12. Well, one of them is Judas Iscariot, right? And so when you look down in chapter 10, uh, Judas verse is mentioned there in verse 4. So he's one of the ones going. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Uh, and they go out, and what do they do? Look at verse 8. They heal the sick, they raise the dead, they cleanse lepers, they cast out demons. So just imagine Judas is scary, walking around, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons. And you say, man, that is so cool. Wish I could do that. It's extraordinary. And yet Jesus will be spending tonight in hell, just like every night. He missed what was vital. He got to do some extraordinary things. But extraordinary things are given to the godly and the ungodly alike. It must make us realize God doesn't value the extraordinary as highly as we do. Because we would probably rather exalt all the way to heaven the people who can do the extraordinary. And yet God doesn't let us earn heaven through extraordinary gifts and abilities that he's given. Second, I want you to see extraordinary gifts are privileges. They're not securities. And you already kind of catch that from the verses I just read. They're not securities. The people who had the gifts, like Judas, like the people in Matthew 7, it wasn't a secure shoe-in to heaven. It was a privilege. To whom much is given, much is required. We're given extraordinary abilities at times to do extraordinary things, but it doesn't mean that God favors us into heaven. That's why He gave us those gifts. That's not our ticket. It's not our security. I mean, you think about a thief. Some thieves, like these scammers that are out and about, extremely intelligent, that they're just taking money from people or have the ability to open and close locks that none of us could figure out or safes. And I could barely put the key in the, the thing and they figure out how to do it without a key. Incredible abilities, but we all know thieves, liars don't enter into the kingdom of heaven. God has given people lots of privileges, but they're not securities. We need to see the difference, recognize the difference. Extraordinary doesn't secure your place before God. Number three, extraordinary gifts may be used against us in judgment. 
So to whom much is given, these gifts, if you're not using them for the love of God in His church, it'd be the very gift that you thought was extraordinary and everybody clapped for will be the very thing God uses against you in judgment. One passage that hints at that is Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. Beginning in verse 4. It says, For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. And now, I'll just go ahead and clue you into the, cue of the, the clue to this passage. A lot of people say, man, this is a difficult passage. Well, the reason it's difficult for people is because they forget the Holy Spirit gives gifts to non-Christians just as much as to Christians. The Holy Spirit gifts non-Christians with extraordinary abilities. Extraordinary gifts. And so he's talking about some extraordinary things. Here you have, really, he's describing this non-Christian life, but a, a person who's on an extraordinary level in the, in the sense that they have come to church as an unbeliever, and they have tasted of heavenly stuff, heavenly gift. They've tasted of the Word of God. They've tasted of the Lord's Supper. They've tasted of baptism. They've tasted of the experience of the Spirit in the body of Christ. Verse 5. They've tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks, here's his illustration, a ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it was also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless, and it's close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So you're close to being cursed. The curse is coming. The judgment day is coming. It says these people use their gifts. And he, the illustration, he says, take two people with extraordinary gifts. They're both planted like a seed in the soil. One springs up. And uses those extraordinary gifts for the love of God. It, it brings forth the harvest God's looking for. The others raises up and ex uses extraordinary gifts. And yet, they only produce thorns and thistles. In other words, they're missing the vital thing God's looking for. And it says, can you not see that person is, is this far away from being cursed? This far away from being burned in the pits of hell. Extraordinary things that we exalt, God devalues. He says it's not really the vital things. And then the last principle, I think, is to see that extraordinary gifts don't last. If you live long enough, you get that. But it seems we forget that. I can't do what I once could. I can't even think the way I once could. The extraordinary gifts don't last. And it's very clear in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, when it says prophecy, gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. Tongues, they'll be done away with. They'll cease. Knowledge, it'll be done away with. These extraordinary gifts will not last. But he says love will. Remind me of that old slogan, kissing don't last, cooking do, you know. Extraordinary gifts don't last. Love do. Love will last. 
So why do we keep exalting the extraordinary when we should be exalting the love that God wants us to have? We've got to deprioritize our lives instead of constantly be telling our kids, our family, our friends, you got to perform. You got to be a producer. You got to make the grade. You got to score the touchdown. You got to score the gold. You got to make the shot. You got to perform. You got to perform. Instead of having the passion of our heart, no, you have got to love God. You must love God. We must love God together. We must love one another. Our priorities should be there. And we get so focused and squeezed by the world to get a performance. Well, if our extraordinary abilities are not going to last, you know, what, 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 what will? What, what, what must we do? How can we have a love that will last? Let me give you three things. Love, loving well. Loving well it requires grace. Loving well requires church. And loving well requires the Word of God and prayer. If you want to love well, you want to love better, you want to make that the vital priority in your life, first of all, realize it's granted to you by the grace of God. To love well requires God to pour it out in your heart. Look at Romans 5. shared this last week, but it's worth an every week reminder. Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the love of God comes with Him. The love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Spirit. Verse 8, same chapter says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a demonstration. God laying down his life for us. And we come to a place in our life and say, I need that. I need someone to die in my place. I need someone to take my judgment. I need someone to take my sin. I need someone to stand between me and God so that I'm spared his wrath. And God says that person is Christ Jesus. He is that person for you. Receive him. And as you receive Christ, he gives you his spirit. And through that spirit, his love is poured out in your heart. See, non-Christian doesn't get this. The only people who get the love of God in their hearts are those who get Christ. So if you're here and you have not gotten Christ yet, you must get Christ. To, to deprioritize, you must get Christ. He must be your Lord and Savior. As you receive Him, He gives you His Spirit. He pours out love within you. That's grace. Many of us want to call it, that's reckless, lavish grace that it would be poured out on someone as sinful as me. So we get to become better lovers. We saw last week as well, Christ saying to his disciples, the world's going to know you're different. How? By love. 
I'm putting in you a love they don't have. And that's what they're going to see, and they're going to see a difference. It's given by grace. In other words, I don't know, I have people come and teach me, David, how to love my wife, how to love my kids, how to love somebody. Teach me how to love well. Well, what have you been doing? What, how have you been going about it? And a lot of times we think we can be better lovers with just good Hallmark words or good rules of living. That's not going to do it. You must have the Holy Spirit pour love out in your hearts. You must see that you are desperate without Christ, that you are in desperate need of a transformation in the heart. And that's the Spirit coming in and giving you the grace of love. So depend upon God and Christ for this love. Then number two, recognize we need the church to become better lovers. So many people today have become so individualistic and say, well, I'll just do church at home. No, 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 no. You don't do church at home. You don't do church online. You don't do church on a screen. You do church in a place where the people of God, that's the church, gather together. I've been so against, you know, just spotlights on the preacher during preaching. And uh, Jonathan was cueing me, and I didn't even know this was a trick of some churches that they put the preacher on the screen and then dim all the lights to get you riveted there because it removes all the distractions. I said, I didn't know that. I would have used that by now if I'd have known that. You know, but um, I've never wanted that because I know the value of you seeing one another. You don't need to just see me. And I don't need to just see you. We need to see each other. And as uncomfortable as it is, that's why we turn the chairs. So that you're not just seeing straight up. You're seeing across to some other people. Because we need the church to be the church. And to love well. Let me show it to you. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I was looking to see how much time I had. I was, I'd read more if I had more time. But let, let's just read verse 15 and 16. Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love. Now, who's speaking here? It's, it's you, not just me. Speaking the truth in love, we, see it's plural, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So it's describing the church. Christ is the head of the body. We are the body. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, how are we fitted for life? How are we those who have it together? Notice the next phrase. We're fitted and we're held together by what every joint supplies, not by what the preacher supplies. You're all a joint, not talking marijuana here. You're a part of the anatomy and you supply something for others according to the proper working, and here's the individualism, of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. 
Every one of you supplies something to someone else. And what you supply to them in love, not just an extraordinary performance, but in love you use your gifts. And it builds up the whole body in love. Somebody shared this with me this week. I forget what it was. I'm seeing some of you Anderson University uh, students in here. and it's, I forget. I think there was a row of you last week somewhere. And you're spread out this morning. You got me fooled. But there was a row of you, about five of you in a row. And you all had your Bible open. And you were all journaling or taking notes and looking and studying the word as it was proclaimed. And somebody walked by and saw you. And it changed their life. And they told me, he says, you've got students in your church that are riveted to the Word of God. They're, they can't be more than 20 years old. And they are consumed with Christ and His Word. And they said, I want that. See, that's you supplying encouragement Building up the body of Christ by them being able to see you. And then you're also able to see them. So many times in our worship and singing, Jonathan may pick, pick a song that none of us know or you don't know. And it seems like everybody else knows or one or two people know. And say, oh, I don't know this. I just don't get it. And then you see somebody worshiping God and you say, I get that. And I'm encouraged. I need to be like that. I need to be more in love with Christ. The church builds one another up. I need you to be a better father. I need you to be a better husband. I need to see you do it. It helps me do it. I need to see you praise God. It helps me praise God. I need to see you pray. It helps me pray. I need to see you repent. It helps me repent. See, we need to see each other. You are missed every week. You're not here. Just as you say, I miss when I'm not here. We, because we need each other. Terribly. We cannot love well without the church. God didn't design it any other way. Another reason why the ungodly can't do it. Because they miss the, the benefits of the body of Christ. We need God's grace. We need God's church to be better lovers. And then number three, we need to recognize our need for the word of God and prayer to be better lovers. Look at John 15, verses 9 through 12. John 15, 9 through 12. Jesus Speaking says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. How do you do that? How do you dwell in God's love? You get in His presence. You get into His Word. You spend time in prayer. You can't really divorce the Word and prayer as you read this passage. For me to do what He's asking me to do, I've got to be in His Word, and I've got to be communicating with him. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, how do you know those? Again, you got to get in the word. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that you, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. I won't take the time to unpack all that, but you see the, the focus. You can't do what God's asking without a focus on God's Word and prayer. You're not going to be better lovers without regularly pouring yourself into the Word of God and into prayer. Well, to love well, we've got to start deprioritizing the life of good things so that we can do a life of vital things. It may not be we in this world doing extraordinary things, but if we have loved, there's value. And that love goes with us, even into glory. Let me just say one other thing, a few other things, real quick. You know, once you understand this, consider the training of our children. Consider the selection of a spouse. When you understand 1 Corinthians 13, would you train your children to just perform, 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 perform? You've got to make a better grade. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do this. Would that be your child training procedure after understanding 1 Corinthians 13? I hope not. Our passion for our kids should be really, you need to do the best of your ability. But if it comes down to an A, a B, a C, a D, or loving God. I want you to choose loving God. You know, we get our kids sometimes just focused on the game. Come, come watch the game with me. And they just get riveted on this sport. I want to be like that. I want to do what I see on the screen. And that becomes their passion. Whether it's, like I say, an athlete or a doctor or a movie star, whatever. Extraordinary gifts, good people doing good things. But what if all of our kids were more like that Anderson University row? Riveted when they walk into the house of God. It's like, wow. And they're focused on the Word of God. And they're focused on the prayers. And they're focused on the Lord's table. And they're focused on the singing and the praise. Because they love God. Consider your selection of a mate. Would you pick a man or a woman to be your spouse before, because they can perform well? So many times, why are you picking this person? Well, because of what they can do for me. It's a performance. Well, what happens when the performance doesn't last. Far better to pick a spouse that says, I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength, and therefore will love you with my life. And consider picking a church. 
So many times we fall into the trap. A good church, we would make our church so much better if we could have bigger facilities and bigger bank accounts when what we really need is a bigger heart for Christ. In love with God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us to a way to get back in line with what really matters. Forgive us our sins. We fall. We yield to the temptation to do good things so that we can measure up to our peers' performance. And we miss love. We ask that you'd forgive us you would cleanse us from our sins and enable us again to see the life of love that we so desperately need, want, must live for your glory. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.